0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Studying philosophy can be a metaphorical journey into wisdom. My guest today experienced it not only as that, but as a very literal journey as well. His name is Eric Weiner, and he traveled thousands of miles around the world to visit the haunts of numerous philosophers as he sought to better understand their insights and how he might apply them to his own life. He wrote about this philosophical pilgrimage in the Socrates Express, in search of life lessons from dead philosophers. Eric and I began our conversations, why he chose to take all his trips by train, and why rail travel. Is particularly conducive to thoughtful reflection. We then turn to the philosophical and physical stops he made on his journey, including why Marcus Aurelius wrote so much about getting out of bed and what ultimately motivated the emperor to start each day, what Thoreau can teach us about seeing, why Gandhi was very interested in the idea of manliness, how Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence can change the way we live our daily lives, and the lesson Simone Beauvoir offers us on aging well. We end our conversation with Montaigne's insight on how to get comfortable with death. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash SocratesExpress. All right, Eric Weiner, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brett. Happy to be back with you. So we had you on a few years ago to talk about your book, The Geography of Genius, where you go to explore these clusters of genius around the world that have happened out in human history. You got a new book out, similar sort of thing. You go, this time, to places where philosophers lived walked, worked, thought, but you get there by train.
1: Mm -hmm. It's called the Socrates Express. What was the impetus behind this book? Well, first of all, I love trains. So let's get that out of the way right off the bat. I'm not a train nerd, as some people are who really get excited about tonnage ratings and locomotive types. I'm not that kind of train lover. I love the experience of riding trains, of just slowing down, I feel like I can think on a train the way I cannot think on an airplane or a bus or even drive me a car. So that was my my means of transport. In, in terms of the, the subject matter, you know, I, I think I got to chalk this one up to middle age, you know, which I know sounds a bit a bit cliched, but it's true. Uh, you start to wonder what's it all about? What am I doing here? And then I, I stumbled across this quote from a, a French philosopher named Maurice Reisling. And he said, Sooner or later, life makes philosophers of us all. And I thought, huh, w- why wait? <laughs> you know, why wait until life becomes a problem for me? It, it wasn't at the time. And then that sent me on the journey of exploring philosophy. And after I tucked away the book and sent it off to my publisher, uh, the pandemic hit and life surely made philosophers of all of us.
0: That's for sure. I want to go back to this idea of trains and your, this connection to philosophy because. You know this in the book and I've seen this with um and when I've read different philosophers. A lot of philosophers didn't like trains because they were too fast. Right. And of course this was in the 19th century. Right. Um but I mean what do you what is it about I mean you said you you think better on a train compared to dry like what is what do you think what do you think trains for you are conducive to philosophizing?
1: Well, well, you're absolutely right about some philosophers not liking trains. Some a lot of people in the 19th century when train travel really uh, became widespread didn't like trains because they complained they were too fast, right? They they got all nostalgic for the carriage and the horse and buggy when you can go more slowly and feel the land. And they felt like the trains moving at, oh, 15, 20 miles an hour back then were just, the scenery was a blur and it was all too fast. So, I mean, that shows us how relative these things are. But compared to, you know, hurtling through space in a tin can at 600 miles per hour, I like the slowness of a train i find it easier to think when i'm moving more slowly and i like sort of this especially you know those european trains where you get your own compartment or compartment you share with some strangers and you get this combination of coziness and expansiveness at the same time which i just find wonderful and i i just feel like i could just ride a train forever with a stack of books and cup of coffee and i'm good to go do you get by train in the united states I do. I took a train clear across the U.S. from my home, Washington D.C., to Portland, Oregon. Took four days and three nights, and it's not okay. The fastest way to cross the country, it's not the cheapest way. But for, in my mind, it's the best way. So, whenever I can, I, I take a train. So let's
0: talk about the way you organize this book. So you it's organized into three parts: dawn, noon. Dusk. Am I reading too much into this? But is this also fall like the seasons of a of a of a person's
1: life, like youth, middle age, elderhood? Uh, you are you are absolutely not reading too much into it. That okay. was my intention exactly. It is course of our life. And in the dawn section, you know there are questions that as we're growing up, there that skills that we need to learn, like how to see and how to listen, how to walk. That we learn at that age. And then when we're sort of in mid-stride of our lives, you know, we want to fight, we want to be kind, want to do all these other things. And then there are certain questions that we really grapple with in the twilight of our life, you know, how to have no regrets, how to cope with the setbacks, how to grow old and even how to die.
0: And it was the type of philosophers that you you picked in this book, they're not like they're not like analytic philosophers or they're trying to, right. these are philosophers,
1: like the original intent of philosophy is like how to live a good life. Mm-hmm. I mean, philosopher means uh, literally from the ancient Greek, a lover of wisdom. Doesn't say anything about PhD dissertations or analytical thinking or logic chopping, as it's been called, lovers of wisdom. And I, I love that because I think that's what we should all Aspire to to be lovers of wisdom. You know, I'm holding a device in my hand right now uh, called an iPhone that contains, you know, pretty much all of human knowledge and just so much information, but not really any wisdom. And and there is a difference. You know, we tend to conflate them. You know, data, information, knowledge, wisdom. You know, information is readily accessible these days, as I said, with the swipe of our finger. But wisdom is something else. You know, wisdom is, is of a different kind. And that's what these philosophers were interested in. Well, let's pay a visit to some of these philosophers you highlight in the book. Sure. And the the one you start off with
0: was, is Marcus Aurelius, the famous Roman emperor, one of the last good emperors. And he was also a stoic philosopher. And I, I, you noted this and I never, I've never noted this because I've read the meditations, his sort of personal diary that he wrote sort of pumping himself up, but we have it today. (laughs) But I didn't know. but you notice this, is that he always talked about getting out of bed. He talks a lot about getting out of bed.
1: Yeah. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think just because you're a Roman emperor doesn't mean it's easy to get out of bed. You know, I mean, and I found this very relatable. I thought, you know, here's this guy who is, as you say, one of the last good Roman emperors, you know, controlled like, you know, two-fifths of the world population yet he had trouble falling asleep at night and trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And he would sort of wrestle with it on the pages of meditations. You know, should I get up? I'm lazy. You're good for nothing. Why should I get up? And it just seemed very modern to me and very relatable, as I said. It's my story too. I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And, you know, the the French philosopher Albert Camus said that the only truly serious philosophical question is whether you should commit suicide or not. And that's Okay, we can talk about that later. But I thought, well, yeah, once you've answered that one and you decide not to commit suicide, you still have to get out of bed. And that's the one that Marcus wrestles with. And what I find interesting is how he ultimately answers it, which is not, you know, I'm going to go achieve something and make my name in the history books. It was the sense of duty, the sense of other people that I should get out of bed for others because people in this empire are counting on me. And, and, you know, if you're at home with a wife and kids and and sometimes, or a dog, you know, this is what gets you out of bed. The dog needs to be fed. Kid needs, kids need to be driven to school. And Marcus had a similar revelation. And you also use this
0: question of, should I get out of bed in the morning to explore the idea of is and ought. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So this was an idea from a Scottish philosopher named David Hume. And he thought that, you know, we can't jump from an is to an ought. In other words, we can't jump from a factual observation, empirical observation, to an ethical imperative. So with the case of getting out of bed, you would say, well, it is a good idea to get out of bed because, you know, you get exercise and your earning potential increases. Therefore, you ought to get out of bed. He thought that was a mistake. And this is why it's sometimes known as Hume's guillotine, because he severs the is from the ought. So, you know, oftentimes we just will make observations about something in the world, anything, you know, that red wine is good for you or red wine is bad for you. Therefore, you ought to drink it or you ought not to drink it. And he thought he thought that was a mistake. You can't jump from the is to the ought. And, and
0: Marcus Aurelius, I mean, he kind of solved that problem. It's like, well, I'm not going to say getting out of bed is good or bad. It's just like, I just got to get a bed because I have to. Like it's a duty.
1: That's it. Yeah, it was a sense of duty to others. And even though, as you know, you've read meditation, so you know it can be a a lot of navel gazing going on there, definitely, because, you know, it was his diary. So we were were actually eavesdropping on him. He didn't mean to publish it. But in addition to the navel gazing, is this sense of duty, you know, which was a, a Stoic thing and a Roman thing. But he got out of his own head, realizing there were others counting on him. And this duty really wasn't just as, oh, I'm a Roman emperor, I have to get out of bed and, and help people. It was his duty as a human being, you know, and this is where his Stoicism is becomes readily apparent. His duty as a human being to, to help others, because the Stoics see us all as connected. You know, if you smash your thumb with a hammer, you help the thumb because it's connected to the rest of the hand and the rest to you. And that's how he thought, and it's a Stoic idea, really, that's how we should relate to others, not as separate entities from us, but as extensions of us. So we can't talk about philosophy without talking about Socrates. Sort of
0: like we consider him the father of philosophy. And what's interesting about Socrates is that he didn't have a Socratic doctrine, right? If you read it, even if if you read his dialogues, you know he has he starts off asking these questions like what is justice and then you spend pages and pages right and at the end you're like i, I still don't know what justice is or even <laughs> what socrates but but yeah. socrates instead he proposed like a way of engaging with the with the world and so how would you describe yeah.
1: this socratic engagement yeah it is it's not a body of knowledge as you say um you you can't really read what socrates thought all you can do is experience and observe his his method and it is, as you say, engagement. It is a way of just engaging in conversation. I mean, I know that doesn't sound highfalutin and, and Nobel Prize worthy, but that's what Socrates did. You know, one, one contemporary philosopher says he engaged in enlightened kibitzing, which is a great term, which is, I think is what he did. He would buttonhole people in Athens, you know, a general, for instance, some fancy general, and ask him what courage is. And it soon became readily apparent that the general, didn't really know. How could a general in an army not know what courage is? How can an artist not know what beauty is? And so he would challenge people, but he did it in this sneaky way in that he would just sort of start to engage them in conversation and ask questions. And every question was followed by another. It's sort of like the, you know, the five-year-old who always says, why, you know, can we have ice cream now? No. Why? Because it's 10 a.m., why can't we have ice cream at 10 a.m.? Because we don't. Why? And it drives us nuts. And it drives us nuts just as Socrates drove people in ancient Athens nuts, not because the questions are silly, but because we can't really answer them fully.
0: Right. Yeah. Like the, you call these like ultimate questions, and we tend to avoid those because we don't have any good answers for them. Or we
1: tend not to really sit with questions. You know, we see a question as kind of an inconvenience, a, a little shortcut on the way to an answer. Right? Questions must lead to answers. And Socrates basically said, Whoa, you know, let's not let's hold on here a second. Let's experience this question fully and see where it takes us. And we're so results oriented these days, as they were back then, to be honest, that we we always want to get to the answer. And Socrates thought, you can't get there unless you really sit with the question, experience it. And that means questioning your assumptions. What do you mean by courage? What do you mean by justice? You know, we just jump ahead to, okay, we need to increase earning potential for people. Well, why? Why is that good? And it's almost a childlike process. This childlike curiosity and more than curiosity, wonder. All philosophy begins with wonder. We have largely, I think, lost this capacity for wonder in our lives.
0: And like you said uh, Socrates is basically he, he's just it's we call it dialogue but it's just conversation and I think we've right. all experienced those late night talks with friends where you're you're just asking questions and just sort of spitballing and you don't ever really come to any conclusions but it, you felt I don't know you felt invigorated uh, right. edified right. by being in that
1: conversation. Yeah because you've experienced the questions and you've asked them in in ways that you wouldn't in the classroom or in the corporate board meeting, you know, because you would might be laughed at. But Socrates basically gives us permission to be a five-year-old and, and ask those annoying, silly questions.
0: And you apply this to your own life. You talk about it. You were kind of complaining to a friend that, you know, I wish I was more successful, sold more books, whatever. Right. And then your friend just
1: asks you, like, what does success look like to you? Right. <laughs> and you didn't really have an answer for that. No, I didn't and it's kind of floored me you know that I had just always assumed that I needed to be more successful. however successful I was, I needed more. And she said she said, what does success look like and and the way she something about the way she phrased it that just stopped me in my tracks like I, I don't know. I don't know what would be enough. I don't know what it would look like. Maybe it looks entirely different. From 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 what I thought, and you know, a really good question is met not with an answer but with silence. You know, you know you've asked a good question when the person on the other end is is quiet. That means that you've shaken them out of their stupor, as Socrates did, and they are starting to see things a little bit differently. Not ninety degrees, maybe ten or twenty degrees, but sometimes that's all it takes. Did you
0: ever have you gotten any closer to answer to what does success look like to you?
1: Uh, no, (laughs) I'm still working on that, but I'm wide open to the possibility that it's not what I think it is. And whenever I find myself, you know, thinking, well, I, I need, need to be on, you know, need to be on the Colbert show. I need, you know, I need this, I need that. And I stop and, and my friend's question comes back to me, what does success look like? And it's helpful. But the problem with these, these great questions is you have to keep asking them over and over again. One, once is, is not enough.
0: No, that's a good advice. I, I've had that moment where you're, you're doing something. Finally, you just stop. And you're like, why am I doing this? Right. And then you, you just like, maybe I don't need to be doing this. Exactly. And that, that's helpful. All right. So the next place you go is you visit Rousseau's. Jacques Rousseau's old tramping grounds and I tra- I say tramping because this guy apparently was a walker what'd you take away from visiting where Rousseau walked
1: well he he was a walker he was a nomad he was sort of this sort of rootless soul you know we're talking back in the 18th century when it really wasn't so easy to be to be a, a rootless soul but he bopped all over Europe often kicked out of places and his favorite way to get around this is pre-railroad time was was by walking. And he would walk sometimes twenty miles a day. He walked some two, three hundred miles once in the course of two weeks. And he would go off on these walks, usually in the countryside, and he'd carry a pack of playing cards with him, and he would jot down ideas and thoughts that came to him when he walked. And he he said that he he his mind only works when his legs are active. And I thought there was great truth to that.
0: And like lots of other philosophers were walkers. Like Socrates in his dialogues, typically he goes on walks with people when he's engaging with them. Nietzsche
1: was a walker as well. Yeah, he's he's Socrates is walking around the Agora, the marketplace of ancient Athens. Nietzsche is hiking in the Swiss Alps. Immanuel Kant, who is very rigorous and disciplined, would go on these constitutionals, constitutionals at 12.45 p.m. exactly every day. So they all had different styles, but they all walked. And I think, you know, there is, it's not a coincidence. Maybe you've experienced this yourself when you're you're stuck on a problem or looking for some answer and you can't think of it. And you're sitting at your laptop and you're like, F it, I'm just going to go for a walk. And you go for a walk, maybe for 10 minutes, maybe for an hour, maybe for two hours, But something happens during that walk where the idea comes to you and you become unstuck. Psychologists call this defocused attention, right? So we have defocused our attention. We're no longer staring at the problem, but we've defocused it and and moved it back to our subconscious. Uh, But then by walking, you know, we're still engaging the brain. You know, you're not just vegging out when you're walking. You have to think about, you know not tripping and watch where you're going. So you have just enough of that part of the brain engaged but the rest of it's freed up. I mean what was your takeaway from Rousseau like walk more? I mean what was <laughs> He was a philosopher of the heart. He was a he was a romantic, one of the first really. And it is it is walk more but it's oh god it, it sounds corny and cliché to take to say it but follow your heart. You know, be be willing to be a rebel, be willing to walk when everyone else is running and driving and, you know, listen to that thing beating in your chest. And, you know, he he thought that, that people, I'll sum up his philosophy in four words, uh, nature, good, society, bad. That's essentially it. And what's more natural than walking, right? So he thought basically that we are born naturally good people and it's only society that corrupts us. So, you know, there there is something to be said of that. There's a reason we like to go for walks in the woods. There's a reason why we feel at peace when we're off in the forest or or on a mountaintop. And um, that's certainly one of the lessons of, of Rousseau.
0: And I guess this is why you included in that that dawn section, like for the youth of our life, right? You need to every young person needs to figure out what they really want. Are they doing something because their parents told them so to do it, teachers
1: told them to do it, or are they really following what's inside of them? Right. And children just do this naturally, right? They they tend to just follow their instincts and and emotions move through them quickly you've maybe you've seen like a 4 year old or 3 year old they'll they'll be so angry you know and they're just crying and then a minute later they're okay it's gone and they're happy you know and and Rousseau who thought a lot about education actually would say that they that's because they have not yet been corrupted by society and they let their emotions flow through them Unencumbered, They don't get stuck with guilt and remorse and all these other adult emotions. So yeah, there was something very childlike about Rousseau, and that's another reason I included him in the Dawn section. I mean, there's also, you got to
0: balance it, because Rousseau, he, he kind of let his proclivities get, like, he'd just, like, show his butt
1: to, he, he'd moon people. Basically. Yeah, he did. I don't yeah. think the term mooning people existed in the 18th right. century, but he was doing it. And he he had a masochistic streak. He liked a good spanking. I mean, and I think, um, you know, Brad, this would be a good place to point this out that these were some weird dudes and dudettes here, okay? <laughs> that that my philosophers were, you know, I I liked them because they were deeply flawed human beings, you know? I mean, Socrates was weird. Rousseau was, moon people. Nietzsche, don't get me started. I mean, they were all, you know, we think of the philosopher as this almost angelic figure who's just sitting by himself thinking deep thoughts. And no, these people wrestled with how to get out of bed, you know, how to stay out of trouble, all kinds of stuff.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with a bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. Their hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and it's not for the faint of heart. They also got a flavor called Sabor by Texas Pete, adds authentic Mexican flavor, and they also have a dust-dry seasoning that matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. But... The flavor that I've been enjoying lately is the chop sriracha sauce. It's got chili, garlic, and some tropical tangy notes. It's really good. I love putting on my eggs. Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeete.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products, as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And you can use promo code podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeete.com. That's podcast twenty four. For 20% off at texaspeat.com, check out the Sriracha Cha Sauce. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that: ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites, so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter Smart Technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So another, an American kindred spirit of Rousseau, I think would be Henry David Thoreau. Um, He's a romantic as well. And you go visit Walden Pond where Thoreau did his experiment in self-reliance. And so I've always wanted to go to Walden Pond, but I'm afraid that if I'm going to go, I'm going to be underwhelmed by it. Did that happen
1: to you? Yes, (laughs) yes <laughs> I was I was underwhelmed before I arrived when I uh, followed the Walden Pond state it's now a state park on Twitter and and they would send me alerts you know by 10 a.m. saying Walden Pond is full today no more entry you know <laughs> from visitors and you know the irony here that this great exercise in, in isolation you know, Thoreau goes off to Walden Pond, builds a cabin, lives there for a couple of years. Is now overcrowded and a tourist destination. I mean, Henry David would come back and be like, "No, that's not what I had in mind." Um, it is underwhelming. It's a pond. It's a nice pond. Nothing special about it. Um, you can see the cabin is is gone. They've reconstructed a, a sort of a scale model, but the site of the cabin is now just some stones and a marker. But people go there. It's a pilgrimage site and you know, I've talked to locals who feel basically like you don't need to come here. Go, go find your own Walt. And That's the whole point.
0: So, besides being underwhelmed, what was your big takeaway from from Henry David?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I go off to Walden Pond thinking for sure this chapter is going to be called, you know, how to how to be alone like Thoreau, or maybe how to live simply like Thoreau. But being open-minded like Socrates, I soon realized that that wasn't really what he was about. It was how to see, like Thoreau, that all of this, you know, living alone in the woods, this isolation simplicity stuff, was really a means to an end, and that end was better vision. He was he was very visual. Everyone commented about his eyes that he had these piercing eyes, very observant eyes, and that he could, uh, in this almost uncanny ability to like pick up. A dozen pencils out of a giant bushel, exactly a dozen each time by sight alone. So he had this almost supernatural vision, but really he had a whole sensibility that was attuned to seeing more beauty in the everyday than most of us do. He saw beauty everywhere.
0: What I like about Henry David Thoreau is he, he's he's a romantic. He's he's kind of a mystic, too. I mean, because there's these stories where, you know, he just, you know, stooped down, pick up an arrowhead that he just happened to find and said, This arrowhead belonged to some great native chief. Right. But then at the same time, you go back to this idea of scene, he was very scientific. I think there was a story of, you know, there's a, a legend that Walden Pond was endless, there was no bottom. And so Henry David waited till the the pond froze over and he got a plumb line and then just dropped it down. And you go, no, it's actually not. It's not bottomless. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's, I love that little, that story that just like he, he really spent his life trying to see what the
1: world was really like. Yeah. And, and the thing is he, he had this combination of uh, skill sets, I guess we'd say that we, we rarely see today and that he, he had the mind of a scientist, but the heart of a poet. And we don't see that very often and you're right he he very much believed in in empirical evidence the power of observation he was a, a naturalist and a scientist and he studied the pond and he made observations but he was not interested in in what is known as the view from nowhere which is the scientist's view you know this idea of objectivity that we're not we're observing the rainbow we're not you know appreciating it necessarily, that somehow seeing the beauty of a rainbow is not a scientific act, but observing the, and measuring the color hues is. Thoreau thought that was a mistake. He, he thought that we're, we're always seeing th- things subjectively, even when we're being scientific about it, that're you know we're part of the experiment. And so he never separated that, that his mind from his heart essentially.
0: So related to seeing is the idea of paying attention. And you highlight a philosopher that thought a lot about paying attention. A lot of people don't know about her either. Her name is Simone Weil. For those who aren't familiar with
1: Weil, can you tell us about her and her philosophy? Okay, also a strange person. And I say that in the best sense of the word. She grew up in France in the early 20th century, born in 1909, I believe. And she born to a very intellectual, very Jewish but secular family. And she studied like the Dickens when she was young. I mean, she was reading the classics like by age eight and, and, the, you know, that sort of genius level. But she had a very spiritual side, which she spent the rest of her too short life exploring. And she was especially interested in attention, the quality of attention. And it really is a thread throughout her writing that she thought that we define attention entirely wrong. And that we don't go about it the right way; that we confuse attention and concentration, and they're not the same thing. What are the, what's the difference between the two? Well, if you are, are you sitting at a desk right now, or um, I'm actually standing in my closet, which is my re- <laughs> slash recording studio. Okay, see, I didn't see that coming. All right, um, but <laughs> you, so you are maybe concentrating. Um, if you were at your desk and at your laptop. You are concentrating on the emails in front of you. You're concentrating on a problem. And you'll notice when you're concentrating, your body sort of tenses up. with This idea of furrowed brow and tensed muscles. And you sort of contract, really, when you concentrate. But when you pay attention in the Simone Weil way, it is more receptive. You, It's more of a waiting than a concentrating. You sort of widen your antennae and... You are in a receptive mode, and you're waiting for something to come to you, and that she thought was true attention. And it's less muscular; it's uh, I would say more yoga, less weightlifting. But she thought it was hugely important, and she thought it was a I don't want to say skill, but really it's an orientation to life and to the world that that we've lar- largely lost.
0: And she. Kind of the way she described attention, it's it's a moral act in a way. it's not just about
1: seeing what's going on in your world. It's actually there's moral weight to paying attention, right. And we, you know, we tend to view things like attention as just transactional, like so many other things that you should pay attention so that you will get better grades in your school so that you will then earn more money. So pay attention. She thought that paying attention, especially paying attention to the suffering of others, was a moral act. And she thought that that's really, that's all that the suffering person wants. Really what they want is someone to give them full attention. And when you do that, she said, it's not like an act of love. It is an act of love, giving another person your complete attention. I think we've, and it's not just suffering people. It's like every I think everyone wants attention. Like they just want to, they want, everyone wants, has this desire to feel noticed. Right. And you know, these days we've really fractured our attention, you know, more than ever. And, you know, I'm constantly getting into, uh, I guess, fights, we would say with my, with my wife, when she picks up her phone, when we're in mid conversation and it really pisses me off. Like, why are you checking your phone? You're supposed to be talking to me. And it's not that, you know, the two seconds that it, it takes her to check her email or whatever it is, she has a real job. Um, it's, that she's cheated me of her complete attention, right? And and children know this; they can detect counterfeit attention a mile away.
0: Now that chapter made me think about how I pay attention to my kids, and it sort of it convicted me. It's like ah, I probably could do a better job at
1: that, right? Um, but you probably should not think of it as a job. <laughs> we, yeah, I know, you know well, that, like, that's, I'm a modern becomes, instrumentalist. Then it, then it becomes in you know this sort of uh, concentration thing. I have to do this, and yeah, where we are never fully paying attention to something, anything. We're always divided. We're never fully committed. And where she Simone Vay saw attention as actually more of a passive mode. And passive, you know, tends to have negative connotations. I think, especially maybe for a podcast called The Art of Manliness, we might think of passive as, as negative, but she didn't see it that way. That that actually the highest thing you could do was to have this passive attention. And it actually took great courage and great, great devotion to do it. So another
0: philosopher you talk about, you go to India and it's, I, I like this story because I've I've heard stories about the crazy trains, train system in India, but you go to India to explore Gandhi and his philosophy. And you had this quest to get on the yoga, the yoga train. What what was that? Yoga,
1: the yoga express,
0: yoga express. So, so what's the yoga express? Why were you so gung ho
1: and trying to get on this? come on it's called the yoga express you've got to i don't do actual yoga right i don't bend that way but i wanted to ride the yoga express because i thought that would be cool and it was going to where i wanted to go which was um the site of gandhi's first uh, ashram in india the city of Ahmedabad in the state of gujarat and you know many hundreds of miles from where i was at the moment in new delhi and I'm like, I have to get on the Yoga Express. And I uh, contorted myself in all kinds of positions to get on the Yoga Express, but, well, I won't spoil it, but it it proved to be uh, more difficult than you would think to get a reservation on the Yoga Express.
0: And how, how was that experience related to, or maybe, was there relation to Gandhi's
1: philosophy at all? Yes, there is. Because if you've ever dealt with an Indian bureaucracy, could be the train system, could be anything really, um, you know that there's a strong impulse toward violence because it is so difficult to get anything done in that country. And they seem to just throw up obstacles every way. And it's a test of patience and a test of resolve. And Gandhi was a big train rider. He loved the train. He took the train all over India and he complained a lot about, he, he wrote in third class, but he complained a lot just about the service and, and about Indian railways, railways, and he was infuriated, but never got violent. But it, it's sort of a test of how do you get what you want, a ticket on the Yoga Express, you can't just be passive. But how do you get it without resorting to violence? Well, let's talk about Gandhi's philosophy. He has this idea of soul force. And he had this idea, it's
0: it's nonviolent, but it's also, it's not passive. Like, it's it's an aggressive it, it's, type it's, of nonviolence. It's what
1: uh, uh, John Lewis was, was talking about when he talked about good trouble, necessary trouble. That's pure Gandhi. And, and Lewis studied Gandhi and traveled to India, as did Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, it is getting in your opponent's face— but getting in their face nonviolently. It's not passive. Gandhi disliked the term passive resistance. He thought there was nothing more active than his form of nonviolent resistance, but it involves confronting your opponent. I won't say enemy because he didn't believe in enemies. He believed in opponents. Confronting your opponent, but doing it nonviolently.
0: And when Gandhi talked about this idea of I call it aggressive nonviolence. He he spoke of it in terms of manliness. Like he used that word. Like this is he was obsessed yeah. with manliness.
1: The, the more I, I, I've studied Gandhi for a long time, I have sort of a, a weird Gandhi thing. I, I've long admired him, and as I read him, I, I discovered that the word manliness just appears a lot. And you're right, a lot. Most people don't think of Gandhi as a manly man. He was skinny, but you know, wiry and muscular, and he was assertive. And he wrote a lot about the need for manliness. He felt that the, the British who were occupying India had emasculated India. And it was his job to remasculate, if that's a word, India, but in a new way, in this nonviolent way. And he, as much as he hated violence, he wrote that the only thing he hated more than violence was cowardice. And he actually said, better to resort to violence than to be a coward.
0: And I guess for, in Gandhi's worldview, like conflict is not bad because conflict is what allows problems to be, brings to the forefront. Like you finally can see that there's a problem there. And then from there, you can actually find a solution to the problem.
1: Exactly. I mean, maybe, you know, couples who over the years say, we never fight, we never fight. And then when they announce their divorce, you're not really surprised. I mean, you are and you aren't because fighting can be healthy. And, you know, Gandhi thought basically, Even if you're not fighting, there's kind of veiled violence going on beneath the surface, and that needs to be brought to the surface and dealt with nonviolently. But yes, that, that was what he thought.
0: All right, let's talk about Nietzsche. You go to the Alps because Nietzsche had to go there because he was a sickly guy. This is one of the one of the things about Nietzsche, like, you know, he wrote this very manly, muscular prose about living dangerously, but he was a sickly, I don't know, a nerd basically. he, was. Um, he had to go, he had to go to the Alps to recuperate, and you go on this hike that Nietzsche went on to where he got this idea of eternal recurrence. For those who aren't familiar with eternal recurrence, can you walk us through
1: it? Okay. So here's the idea. It's a thought experiment, really. One, one, one day you're visited by, let us say you get an email. They didn't have email in each of these But you, you get an email saying, here's the secret to the universe. Your life repeats itself exactly forever and ever. Everything in Brett's life that's happened up to this point will repeat itself including a conversation with me saying everything in Brett's life up to this point will repeat itself. That will repeat also. And it will do this forever and ever for all eternity. And then Nietzsche's question is how do you respond to this email? (laughs) Do you say the recipient is just, oh, thank you for telling me this. This is great news. Or do you see it as a curse? This is like, you know, worse than a Nigerian Telemarketing scam or whatever. This is just terrible. You know, this is this is terrible news. And he thought how we answered that question determined our outlook on life and our degree of happiness, really.
0: And so the so the idea is it's make is the idea of re- eternal recurrence is to make you live each day like well, if I have to repeat this for the rest of my life, yeah, What, well, I, what well, is
1: what is worthy of eternity? And I should say briefly that he he tried to sketch it out mathematically and he did a bunch of research which he never actually published looking into you know the idea that you know like if you take two people playing chess maybe eventually they'll repeat every game exactly so there is there is some scientific basis for it but it's essentially a thought experiment and it it forces you to ask the question what is worthy of eternity and if you're not living the life you want to live not only this time around but forever and ever maybe you should make a change but then also it helps you. I
0: mean, it kind of forces you to confront, like, what do you do with the suffering? Because Nietzsche would say, "Well, you just got to learn to love it, or else you'll just be miserable." So he'd say, "Embrace suffering."
1: Yeah, but he didn't say it with such a resigned tone of voice. To be honest, um, <laughs> he said it with lots of exclamation points. He loved the exclamation point. He talked about the need to to dance. You know, he was not a good dancer, but he just he sort of dances across the page, and he uh, he thought we need to dance and. Dancing, if you think about it, is this kind of nonsensical thing we do where we move around sort of to the beat of music, kind of, kind of not. Um, it's not productive. And there are all kinds of dances, there are funeral dances in many cultures when 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 there's great grief and sadness. And that's essentially Nietzsche's philosophy. It's it's the dance of grief. It's the dance of suffering. It's even you know, it's easy to dance when the music's good and everything's going well. But what Nietzsche asks is, can you, can you dance even when things are lousy? Can you find a way to dance? And a, a sort of variation of eternal recurrence is what's been called the marriage test. And let's say you're recently divorced after a long marriage, ended poorly, obviously, in divorce. Would you do it again? Would you, knowing what you know, would you do it again? Would you marry that person and go through that marriage and go through the divorce? And then that's essentially what eternal recurrence is. You know, when you're talking about dancing to suffering when bad things happen,
0: that made me think of Zorba the Greek, the end. Right. The movie where the whole, the timber
1: operation just crashes and then they dance at the end. Exactly. And that's sort of, it's not resignation, actually. It's something else. And uh, I'm not quite there myself, but I definitely think Nietzsche was onto something because he suffered. He, as you said, he was sickly, had terrible headaches and stomach upset, and terrible vision, and yet he accepted it all and and made it. He he accepted his life not despite the suffering, but in a way because of it. So you go and visit
0: where a 20th century existential philosopher hung out, Simone Beauvoir, and her seminal work. Is the second sex, which is about the female experience, but she also wrote about the universal experience of aging, getting old. And this section hit home for me because I'm starting to approach forty. And, you know, I don't feel old, but every now and then I look in the mirror and think,
1: "Man, I'm getting really old." Yeah, she had she had that experience. She was 51, and and she looked in the mirror and she saw this stranger staring back at her, and she's like, "Oh my god, when did I become old?" And then she went for a walk in the street and some. Woman came up to her and said, You know, you remind me of my mother. And that was it. <laughs> you know? So that's when she had her, I call it the collision with old age, that we don't we don't brush up against old age or sideswipe it. We collide head on with it. And like how did she manage it? What did she suggest we do to deal with that? Well, I should say that anyone who knows anything about Simone de Beauvoir will say, Really? You you chose her for aging because she she was on the page very pessimistic about it she wrote this long tome 500 page tome called the coming of age which basically most of it was old age sucks you know and there's no redeeming nothing redeeming to it but if you read it carefully and you look at her life you realize that she actually did age well she she was aged reluctantly you know at first she she fought it every step of the way but she she sort of came up with, she didn't come up with the list, but I I, uh, inferred the list from her writing of things you can do to age well. And I should say that we don't have a culture of aging in our country. We have a youth culture and an aging population desperately clinging to the youth culture. And she thought this was a mistake. You know, if you're going to be old act your age, essentially. In other words, don't try to imitate a a 20-year-old. That's just silly and absurd. And she thought it was hugely important to stay busy and continue with your projects. That was her favorite word, to make friends late into life. She made one of her best friends ever. Sylvie Labon was her name. 30 years separated them, but they were the best of friends. And really, in a way, stop caring what other people think. Simone de Beauvoir observes that Some of the greatest artists really had a breakthrough late in life. After they'd achieved some success, they were able to go off in a completely different direction because they didn't care what others thought. So she actually ended up aging quite well and and came to embrace it late in life. And have you been able to, I don't know, live some of the stuff that she recommended? So-so, I would say. You know, I'm sort of – I'm a little bit older than you, and I'm I'm at the uh, stage where it's – I'm engaged in what I call the great summing up, which is essentially you start to look back at your life, and you look for a narrative. You look for a thread to sort of make sense of it. And this can be an act that can make you depressed, or it can actually be uplifting, and I think for most of us it's more uplifting because we start to see this narrative arc. I mean, really, we're creating the arc in our mind, but never mind. It's it's there. I once met a composer of classical music in Iceland who was older than me. And, and looking back, he said, Well, I met everyone I needed to meet when I needed to meet them. And I think Simon de Beauvoir would agree that with that too. You start to see that things happened for a reason. I'm not saying that everything is faded, but all the pieces start to fit together.
0: So the last philosopher you visit is Montaigne. And he famously wrote these essays just about everything. could be about food, sex, but then he also wrote a lot about dying. And he famously said, philosophy is learning how to
1: die. Yeah, he changed that by the end of the essays to philosophy is learning how to live and dying is just part of it. Um, but he 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 wrestled with death and dying throughout his life and on the page. I should say that he lived in a time, uh, even though it was the 16th century in France, that it's not that different from ours and that there was a, a plague, bubonic plague in Bordeaux, where he was actually mayor. And he did what a lot of people did. He escaped. Uh, his family owned a vineyard. Out in the countryside, and he went there. Went up to his tower, wrote his essays. In fact, invented the form of essays, and thought a lot about death and dying. And he thought about it mostly intellectually until one day, he was out riding. He was a real equestrian. He loved riding, and some jerk and a big horse knocked him down and just you know flattened him. And he thought he was de- dying. I mean, he was coughing up globs of blood, and he thought that was it. He had what today we'd call a near death experience and changed his attitude uh, toward death and dying. And he he realized how well, he said it wasn't death that he was afraid of, but dying the process. And that's probably true for most of us. He realized that it's just, it is part of a natural process. You know, the Greek philosopher Epicurus says, Well, you didn't think about that you were nothing before you were born. That never bothers you. So why should it bother you that you'll be nothing after you die? And Montaigne wrestles with that and ultimately he concludes that you know we just don't know but nature knows best that nature has your back he says don't don't you're afraid of dying don't worry nature's got you covered
0: yeah he says you, you already know you'll you'll know what to do when it's time right. to, when,
1: when it's time to happen you, you'll know what to do and you think about childbirth i mean we didn't people women gave birth Successfully, not always successfully, but you know obviously we've propagated the species for many centuries before modern medicine came along. And you know there's a healing process in nature. If you break your bone, it will heal. And he just thought that that we should not look at death as something out there. There's me and then there's death. where part, you know you start to die the day you're born, and that's not something that necessarily needs to make you depressed. It's just part of nature.
0: Has that helped you at all? Are, I mean, does this thing
1: about dying? Uh, again, I have I have to give the so-so yeah. <laughs> answer. Um, you know, uh, a, a lot of this is is easier in theory than in practice. But I, I like Montaigne. I liked how he, you know, he was sort of like me in that he he took a little bit from here and there. He read all the philosophers and ultimately his saying was, what do I know? You know, he had that sort of questioning what he really knew. And he was just very relatable, um, I thought. And yeah, I mean, I keep going back to what he wrote about death and dying and, you know, it still freaks me out. I, I, the idea of nothingness, I have to be honest, but I, I do find not just comfort in his words, but wisdom. And for those who want to dabble in philosophy,
0: Montaigne's a lot, it's a fun read. I, I would consider, like, he was like a, the first blogger because you just,
1: just exactly. write about whatever. There you go. He wrote... He wrote, he wrote about thumbs. He wrote about cannibals. He wrote about his penis. He wrote about food. And then he wrote about death and dying and religion and all these serious topics too. And they were very personal. And they, as you read them, they become increasingly personal and you find that he's hitting his stride. Well, Eric, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, I have a website, ericweinerbooks.com, Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R, all one word, or on Twitter, Eric underscore Weiner, again, W-E-I-N-E-R. Well, Eric,
0: this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. I
1: really enjoyed it.
0: My guest today is Eric Weiner. He's the author of the book, Socrates Express. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his book and his work at his website, ericweinerbooks.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Socrates Express, where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listening to the Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.